Good morning, everyone. I look really high class with two cups up here. But to answer the question in conversation I was having with Mark Schwarting before, my coffee's here, Mark. I didn't know where I put it. Now I do. I'm delighted to open God's word with you this morning. We are going to be in Psalm 90, and I invite you to find Psalm 90. We're going to spend three weeks in Psalm 90, so we'll do verses 1 through 6 today. We'll read those in just a moment. Um, But what I want to bring up to you at the very beginning is that for each of these successive sermons, as we look at Psalm 90, I want to put a little challenge before you as we hear the word and as we respond to the word. And it's very simple, so don't get worried. Um, But as, as we're looking at Psalm 90, part of it is how do we enter into the story that the psalm is telling us? And we'll talk more about that as we go through. And the challenge I want to give you is think as we hear the text and as we walk through it together today, um, what is a one sentence or one word prayer that you could create based on what you hear that you could use every day this week as a prayer, as your response to the sermon, to the words, not the sermon, to the words of the text? I don't care what I say. I care what the word says. So think that way now. I'll give us a little bit of uh, silence at the end uh, in order to, to have a moment to respond. If you have one of the notebooks, you can write in there. Um, If not, you can write on your hand or your neighbor's hand, whatever works, Um, but come up with something. Let's read Psalm 90, though, verses 1 through 6. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. This is the word of the Lord. As we consider this psalm, I want to put it in its perspective in the grand book of Psalms. Um, The book of Psalms, as far as the arrangement of the text goes, it's in five books. Uh, So 150 chapters in five books. Normally, I wouldn't care that much about bringing that up, but it's worth noting, I think, in this case. Each book ends with a benediction as the last psalm, even though it's its its own independent psalm. It functions as a blessing or an ending, a grand ending to that book. Psalm 150 ends as both an ending to... Uh, book five of the Psalms, but also kind of a grand ending to the whole book, a praise the Lord ending. Um, We recognize that this is the only Psalm we have for Moses uh, here, Psalm 90. And even though we say that the, the Psalms are arranged, that doesn't mean they're not inspired by God, right? God doesn't just inspire the words, but God inspires the arrangement thereof, right? And how they're used as well and can inspire uh, over time as the worshiping body worked with that and put them together in a, in a way that they were arranged for worship and for prayer. That's why they're arranged the way they are, so that we can use them as the God-inspired Word of God for that purpose. Sometimes the arrangement of the Psalms is really obvious, why it's this way versus that way. Sometimes it's not as obvious, um, but I bring it up here because this Psalm, Psalm 90 of Moses, begins book four of the of the fourth book of Psalms. And Psalm 106 is actually uh, the benediction of it, and it has everything to do with Moses. It kind of takes all of its cues from Moses 
and what went on in his life uh, as it rounds out. And then there are a couple mentions of Moses throughout the other Psalms. But other than that, Moses is not mentioned in the Psalms at all, just in book four. And so I want to bring that up because as we read Psalm 90, it kind of seems a little bit timeless. Like it's not really connected with some specific event or occurrence as we read it. And scholars kind of hum and haw about what, what, what may be the time frame and all that sort of thing. But I want to point out that often we approach Scripture, and I hear this a lot when people talk about the timeless truths of Scripture. Indeed, they are timeless truths. Um, and that's an important thing to recognize, but sometimes when we talk about the timeless truths of Scripture, it's easy to then not have them grounded in a timely moment, right? In a, in a moment that's relevant for us. So they're for everyone at all times, but not they sometimes can specifically then not seem like they're for us because they're for everyone at all times. And the distinction I make between timeless and timely, both important things, um, I point this out with, let's say, the signage that we have around the church. You know, we have little cards that you can invite someone to church with, little business cards, or we have signs that say when the church, church time is. Timeless is to say Sundays at 9 a.m. Join us Sundays. You hand a card to Beth and I say, join us Sundays. Timely is to say, join us this coming Sunday, right? There's a difference between those. And so if we look at Psalm 90, it can seem a little timeless and it can seem like we can leave it at, at a little bit of a distance if we don't put ourselves into it, if we don't recognize how our story is a part of that story. Psalm 90 is actually timely. It has something to say to you and me now. And God works in that way. God is timely, actually, in how he functions. A great passage from the New Testament that tells us how timely God is is Galatians 4, 4 through 5, where it says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. A thing happened in history that God did that affects us all. That's not timeless, that's timely. And that's for all of us, and a story we're all called into. Psalm 90, though, it has no time markers. We don't know when it happened. But I bring up Psalm 106 as the benediction because what it does, if we look at those two things together, and I'm, I'm not going to read Psalm 106, but I encourage you to read it later today. It's, it's a wonderful psalm. It gives a personal connection and shows the story that's being referenced. It gives a personal connection to the life of Moses. So why would Moses be able to say these words? Well, we can look at his life and say, oh, here's why. Here's how timely this is for him. And we can see then further how it connects with God's covenant people. As you insert the story in there and see why it works with God's covenant people, we can see how it connects with those who were rescued from the Exodus. And we can see how it connects with even those later on, after the psalm was written, with those who will eventually be exiled. In their story, it works really well with their story, as it turns out. It works well with those who lived in the days of Jesus. They can see how they're a part of the story because it's timely, even though it's not connected to a specific moment that we can see. And it leads me to believe that there might be something here for you and me to hear and respond to today as well. It's a timely word. And as we look at Psalm 90 over the next three weeks, can you see your own life in the text? That's part of the question. That's why I'm challenging you with the prayer. Can you see your own life there? And as we look at Psalm 90 over the next three weeks, can you see the story of God's people in the text? I think one of the overarching points to the whole thing, it's to, the takeaway from today that we can see when we enter into the text, and it's the takeaway for all the weeks really, is that with God we have a home and a purpose. 
and without God we're homeless and aimless. I think that's what the psalm is telling us from the very beginning. If we consider then Moses, Moses, it says, uh, a prayer of Moses, the man of God, is the title that mine gives, which is not in the text, it's just thrown in there. We see that um, his story, Moses' story, is chronicled in Exodus through Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. He's the human character that's in view there. Obviously, it's about what God's doing, but he's the human character. But I want to step actually before uh, Moses' story today as we consider these first words, especially, Lord, you've been our dwelling place, and what that means in the life of Israel and for all humans, really, if we go back to Genesis. Because as you read Genesis, you recognize that, um, as we talk about the arrangement of the text, Genesis is, is most understandable to people going through Exodus. It's telling them a lot about this, uh, how it's framed is to tell them how, why, why they are where they are and what God wants to do with them and how God cares about them. And it tells us the same thing today. Genesis is conveniently structured in four big sections, and I want to just highlight those four sections and consider, Lord, you have been our dwelling place as we do that. The first thing that we see in Genesis is the very beginnings in the Garden of Eden. God created the world. He called it good. He makes a place uh, where he puts people designed in his own image to be there and be in communion with him. And it's very good, he says. What God created is good. Thanks be to God for that. But in very short order, by chapter 3 of the Bible, uh, humans have taken a prideful rebellion against God the fancy big word for that is sin. And uh, thank you. Sin destroys that which is good. That's all it does. It's a destructive force. Adam and Eve both ate the apple. The fact that anyone could point the finger at the other is a result of sin. Right? We, we point fingers. It breaks relationships. The most important destruction that comes from the introduction of sin by us humans is a broken relationship with our Creator. From the very beginning, though, we can see that those words, Lord, you have been our dwelling place, was what God intended. But if we reframe them a little bit to put them in context for Adam and Eve and what happens in those first chapters of Genesis, we could say this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place, but we changed the lock at the very time you showed us trust. If we look at the next section of Genesis, we see Abraham and the covenant that God creates with him. Abraham didn't know God at the very beginning. God called a people through Abraham. He said, the destruction that's come from sin, I'm fixing that. Guess what? I'm going to fix that by making a covenant with you. And your family line is going to bless everybody. And that's how I'm going to redeem the world. It's through that, through that covenant fulfilled. And we can see that God remained faithful to his good creation. God called Abraham, who with all of his flaws, Abraham learned faithfulness. He learned to walk with God. And it's actually really fun to watch that play out in Scripture, to watch Abraham begin to learn what it looks like to faithfully walk with a faithful God. And so for to see, Lord, you have been our dwelling place from the beginning, to reframe that in, in uh, Abraham's story, we'd say, Lord, you have been our dwelling place, faithfully walking with us while we learn to walk with you. And if that's your only prayer this week, make that, make that your prayer. It's a good one. I want to faithfully walk with you, Lord. You've been my dwelling place. The third big storyline that we see in the book of Genesis 
it skips over Isaac. That poor guy doesn't get much playtime in the book of Genesis. You feel bad because he's a pretty good kid. But Jacob and Esau, his sons, they're problematic. And even though you have people who are direct descendants of the covenant from Abraham, we talk about the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for goodness sakes. Jacob and Esau show that even the close relatives of God's covenant can test his patience quite a lot. Jacob, from the moment he comes out, is a deceiver, and he wrestles with everyone in life. Everything he does is done the hard way, it seems like. That's where all of his lessons are. And if we're to reframe what's going on in the story, Lord, you've been our dwelling place at that point, we'd say, Lord, you've been our dwelling place even when we were trying to pick your pocket, sneak out the window at night. And then finally, the last major story in the book of Genesis is that of Joseph, which is actually really also about Judah. And if you look at the story of Joseph being in captivity, wrongfully accused, sold into slavery, all that goes on with him, he's not, I mean, he's not a perfect gem at the very beginning. He's got his problems, right? He's either really naive or really cocky or a little bit of both. Um, And his brothers are no better at all. And in that story, it does seem sometimes like God is not there to Joseph. It feels like God's absent to Joseph at times, but God was there the whole time, as it turns out. God was involved in every step of what happened with Joseph. God's plans were being worked out even in Joseph's toughest moments. You see that through the book of Genesis in that final section. But Joseph and his brother Judah, who were both sort of redeemed in the story, they lacked the character of God at the very beginning of their lives. But by the end, they're starting to reflect that character in who they are. So if we're reframing that and looking that in the the context of Psalm 90, we could say, Lord, you've been our dwelling place even when we weren't the nicest people to be around. God's been faithful. He was faithful with his people through and through up until you get to Moses. He's faithful with us as well. And so I want to look a little more at that dwelling, that word dwelling, so that we have a good understanding of what that means. There's a few ways that that specific word gets used in the Old Testament. And I think it's important for us to to look at that so we can understand what does it mean? You know, it could mean a number of things, but what is is being um, achieved with that word here that we should understand? And there are probably a couple layers, but we'll kind of pinpoint one or two. We see the word dwelling used in the Old Testament for animal dens, for instance. None of these scriptures will come up on the screen. I'll just read them for you. But Psalm 101 has a good reference for that. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises, and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Their dens is the dwelling place. So it's a place away from the humans, away from anything that would kind of mess with their plans. It's a place of refuge, as it turns out, too. And that does play into our word here. Another way we see dwelling used in in the Old Testament is God's dwelling. 2 Chronicles in chapter 30 has one. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them, for their prayers reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. And I think this is worth pointing out that sometimes this is, especially if you go out of the building here and talk to someone who believes in God as spiritual but not religious or a nun or whatever it is in that category but doesn't follow Christ, 
you'll often hear something like this understanding of, of what something like this might mean. God's up there and we're down here. He's on the 101st floor of the building and we're all the way down to the bottom. And there's a distance. He's there, but he's not really involved, maybe. Or it takes a lot of work to send a message up to him or something like that. That's not necessarily what's being said here, but that's sometimes how people understand it. God's dwelling place is somewhere far removed from us. There is truth to that. God can be our refuge. And some of your translations that you're using might have that. Lord, you've been our refuge, it might say. That's actually an alternate use of what's there. Psalm 91.9 has a, a reference for this. It's, if you say the Lord is my refuge and make the most high your dwelling. There you have it used both times. And we can see this is kind of like the animal den all of a sudden. There's safety there. We can retreat to God our dwelling as a safe place to be. There is truth to that. Finally, then, how about God making his effort to dwell with us? We also see that in the Old Testament. Psalm 76. His tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion, for an example. That is, his tent is in Jerusalem, Salem, and his dwelling place in Zion, where the temple is, his Shekinah glory, that place. I would say that this is the most important one that we ought to land on for what's going on here. This is the most important to the psalm itself, but also to the storyline of Scripture. Because what is God doing through Jesus but making his dwelling among us and coming to live among us? That's where God is. He's with us. Just like we saw in the Garden of Eden from the beginning, God wanted to be in close proximity and relationship with us, his dwelling in the same place. We're the ones who make spatial movements. We're the ones who back off. And, and step away from God. We're the ones who need to come to God for refuge. And he can be that. But God wants to dwell with us. Lord, you've been our dwelling place. We should be close. Is what that means. Throughout all generations. We'll land here and then go to the table. Throughout all generations. That's the other part I wanted to highlight. So we're just on verse 1. And we'll go faster in the next couple weeks. We're not going to come back to this stuff. But you, Lord, you've been our dwelling place. And then our is encapsulated in the all generations too. So I don't want to miss that word our in there. God didn't just create and then step back. So we saw that with the dwelling place. He's not on the hundred first floor and we're on the first floor and he's like, you're on your own, good job, do whatever you want to do. That's not how God functioned. He faithfully cares for his creation. Lord, you've been our dwelling place. That's part of what's in there. He's faithfully with us through thick and thin, through all that's there. And we live under his care. Abraham, when he was called, if we go back to that storyline from Genesis, Abraham, as far as we can tell, didn't really know God real well or at all when God first called him. But Abraham, when God covenanted with him, Abraham learned to walk with God. He recognized God as his dwelling place at that point. Jacob felt inferior. If we go back to that storyline with Jacob and Esau, and he deceived his way through life and he wrestled with God. God, you've been faithful You've been our dwelling place throughout all generations, even when we were wrestling with you. And if we acknowledge it, some of us in the room are people who like to wrestle with God. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but you know who you are. You wrestle. And that's actually okay. I think we ought to recognize, though, how Jacob does it. Jacob realizes that he's not God in the wrestling match. Sometimes that's the challenge when people wrestle with God, is to recognize that I'm not God. God gave him, he touched his hip, and then he 
limps for the rest of his life, he gave him a constant reminder that you are not God. But Jacob was able to recognize that and walk with God from that point. Throughout all generations, you've been faithful. You've been our dwelling place. That's what we see right there established at the beginning. And if we look at verse 3 and then look at verse 5 and 6, and we'll draw it to a close. Verse 3 says, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. And we're reminded in that of the language from Genesis that God created, created from the dust. And we'll be reminded of that in a couple weeks at our Ash Wednesday service as we put the ashes on our forehead, being reminded of our mortality and our life before the Lord. But we're mostly reminded that life is fleeting by this. That what God has, generation to generation, continues to go on. God, when he wrestles with Jacob, you know what? He could have destroyed him right there. He had every right to. He said, no, I'm going to give you a reminder. We're going to walk together. And he gives us those reminders. He says, I'm your dwelling place throughout all generations. You enter into this story with me. My timeline is different, but I care for you right now. And give you an invitation into this story. I'm your dwelling place. The other thing that we see here, and it's, they're apparently very difficult to translate, and I don't have command of the Hebrew, so I couldn't tell you other than what the scholars say, but verses 5 and 6 say, Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. And yet again we're reminded that life is fleeting. God could give up on us if he chose to, but he's our dwelling place throughout all generations. He says, I'm not going to do that. God is faithful. And the thing that we can take away from this is even though life is fleeting, because God is faithful, each morning when it says the grass springs up, it literally sprouts up, is the word there. There's a new opportunity to respond to God's care and faithfulness each new day. And we should take that because he's our dwelling place throughout all generations. With God, we have a home and a purpose. Without him, we're homeless and aimless. I want to take silence. The band can come up. But I want to take a moment of silence and allow you just 30 seconds to at least write down if you've thought of a prayer or even a word that you can use to prompt yourself with prayer to remember that we have that opportunity each morning to recognize that God is our dwelling place, sometimes our refuge indeed in times of trouble, but God is our constant and loving and faithful one who cares for us. So take, take silence, write something down, and then I'll close in prayer. Creator God, you are our dwelling place. Teach us what that means today. We could try and hide from you as if you're distant from us, but that would be futile. Help us draw near to you so that we have a place of refuge in the storms of life. Give us a heart to seek your presence and be holy as you are holy. As you walked with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Judah, so walk with us. May we not only marvel at your faithfulness, but learn to live faithfully with you. Each morning brings a new opportunity to respond to your care 
to recognize that this world and this life are gifts for you. And we squander those gifts if we don't recognize just how close you have come through Jesus. Give us new birth through Jesus and new life through your Holy Spirit.